welcome to our continued sermon series, Letters to the Candidates. What would you write if you could write something to each candidate? And more importantly, what would God say to them? Now, before we jump into that, I heard a story about uh, three individuals who got together uh, to discuss uh, creation. One was a surgeon, uh, the other was an engineer, and the third was a politician. And each of them was arguing the fact that their profession was first used in the creation. The surgeon said to the engineer and the politician, it's obvious that God used medicine first because it was a delicate surgery taking that rib out of Adam and shaping and fashioning it into a woman. The engineer looked at him and he said, well, that, that was important, but he said, you need to understand that in the original Hebrew, it says that before God formed the world, it was chaos. And so it really took an engineer to form that chaos into the world, the structure, and the order that we have today. And then the politician looked at the surgeon and looked at the engineer and had kind of a Cheshire smile on his face. He said, well, fellas, you wouldn't have any of that if it wasn't for we politicians who created the chaos in the first place. <laughs> now, this is the time of year when our politicians take quite a beating uh, in terms of jokes and being made fun of, and many of them deservingly so. But I want to honor the fact that there are politicians out there, men and women, who honestly are seeking to serve the country well and who really are, are desirous of, of getting us on track with God and his word. And I just think it's really important for us to pray for them and to encourage them uh, and, and ask God to bless them. Because I, I know some folks who are, who are involved at uh, higher levels of government who love God and who love this country. And they share with me that it is just so hard in government to live your faith, practice your faith, and, and try to focus on the right thing. So um, let's just give it up uh, for our, our politicians who are trying to do the right thing. Can we do that? Because some of them may attend our church. All right. And let's not just lump everybody into, into one bag. Now, having said that, as we get into the second message, uh, we want to answer another uh, question about what would God say to our politicians. Last weekend, we looked at the life of Solomon. If you remember, if you weren't here, you can always go online and listen. And in that lesson that we looked at, we saw that one of the things God wants our politicians to know is that if they want to be blessed, if they want to be successful, if they really want our country to succeed, then it's important for them to govern according to the truth. And the truth that is revealed by God's word. It is the only truth by which to govern by. It is the only truth by which to live by. And I know there's some people out there that would say, oh, you're very narrow and, and you know, you're not being tolerant of other views and other beliefs. And I just have to say, well, I can respect other people's views and beliefs. I am convicted that God's word is the only truth. Amen? That it is the only way that we can go and the only way we can follow this weekend, I want to look at a different individual in history, an individual 
whose success was great, whose kingdom was expanding, and whose power seemed so unstoppable. His story is found for us in the book of Daniel. So if you want to turn there in your Bibles, your iPads, your iPods, or whatever gadget you use, if you're using the chair Bible here or at 95th, and I welcome our 95th audience, turn to page 670, all right, in the uh, chair Bible, and you'll be about where I want you, all right, in the book of Daniel. Now, in the book of Daniel, uh, we meet this this individual I'm talking about. His name is King Nebuchadnezzar, one of the great kings of all time, perhaps one of the first true, you know, kings of the world, so to speak. He was a powerful, powerful man. And King Nebuchadnezzar, around 580 B.C., where our story takes place, defeats the Jews who are living in uh, the southern kingdom of Judea and in Jerusalem specifically. God had warned his people that if they didn't get their act together and submit themselves to him, he would bring another nation to conquer them. He would raise up another nation to conquer them. And though God spoke through such prophets like Jeremiah, they ignored God. And so God sent Babylon, God sent King Nebuchadnezzar and defeated the people because they refused to listen to him. Now, As we continue to look at the story, we discover that he was a real genius when it came to leadership, when it came to ruling others. When he invaded another nation, one of the things that he would do is that he would take their brightest and best young men and he would indoctrinate them in Babylonian culture, in Babylonian religion, and in the Babylonian way of doing things. And then he would take the ones who survived that, the best of the best, and he would make them his advisors. One of those advisors was Daniel. And Daniel grew in wisdom. He grew in stature. He grew in favor before King Nebuchadnezzar because God was with Daniel in a very special way. And in Daniel chapter 4, where we find our story this weekend, King Nebuchadnezzar has had a very troubling dream. And he wants Daniel to explain it to him. Now, there's a good reason why he wants Daniel to explain it to him, and that's because this is not his first dream. He's had another dream earlier in the book of Daniel a dream that he didn't understand, a dream that was confusing to him, and he wanted an explanation for it. And so he summoned all of his wise men, his advisors, and he said, I want you guys to tell me what I dreamed and what it means. And they all looked at him like, are, are you crazy? Except they didn't say that. I mean, no other king has ever asked his wise men to do something like this. Tell us a dream and we'll give you the meaning. And King Nebuchadnezzar, in essence, looks at them and says, yeah, right, I'll tell you the dream and you'll make up a meaning. No, if you're really as smart as you are, if you're in touch with the gods, you tell me what I dreamt and you tell me what it meant. And if you don't, I'm going to put you to death. Well, there was huge panic. Because, you know, they were all a bunch of fakes, basically, all right? And none of them knew what the dream was and how were they going to explain it. 
And Daniel said, time out. Can you give me just a little bit of time and let me ask God what the dream was and give you an explanation. And so there was a little time out period. And Daniel says to his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, let's fast, let's pray, and let's ask God. And God reveals the dream to Daniel. And then Daniel goes into Nebuchadnezzar, and he explains the dream to Nebuchadnezzar and what it means. And it has a profound effect on Nebuchadnezzar because Nebuchadnezzar was a very prideful man. And it is, it's hard to advise somebody who's full of pride. But he's so taken back by the fact that Daniel knew the dream and then knew what it meant that in Daniel chapter 2, verse 47, it says, The king said to Daniel, Truly, your God is the greatest of gods, the Lord over kings, a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this secret. It's just fascinating to watch Nebuchadnezzar all of a sudden acknowledge God. Because, you see, when he conquered Jerusalem, he destroyed the temple that Solomon had built. And he ransacked that temple in search of the image of, of Israel's God, Yahweh. But Remember, God told his people, no graven image. You won't make an image after me. So all they could bring out was the treasure from the temple, and they brought it back. Now, why were they looking for the image to bring it back? Because the Babylonian god of Marduk was kind of like the chief big god. And to bring some other nation's gods back was kind of to say, our god is bigger than your god. Our god is better than your god. And he is the chief God. And by putting all these other images in front of the image of Marduk, it's like saying, and he's the boss of all the gods. And now your God's our God, and your God has to do what our God says. And so all of a sudden, Nebuchadnezzar realizes, oh my goodness. And I think Nebuchadnezzar kind of saw through a lot of the fakery in their religion of those days. And he just says, wow, your God is the true God. He truly is God. Look at what he has done. Amazing, amazing. So Daniel's there, and Nebuchadnezzar tells Daniel, I had this dream. He doesn't tell Daniel to tell him what the dream is because he knows Daniel's the real deal. And he says, I, I don't know what it means. Now, in Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 4, he saw this, this great tree in the middle of the earth. It was giant. It went way high into the air, and everybody could see that tree. And it was so full that, you know, all the birds of the air could nest in it, and all the animals of the world could find shade and comfort in it. And there's enough fruit on that tree to feed all, all of life, everybody who had a need, and it could be fed by that tree. It was magnificent. And then in his dream, something happened. Look what it says in verse 23. Then you saw a messenger, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump and the roots in the ground, bound with a band of iron and bronze and surrounded by tender grass. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live with the animals of the field for seven periods of time. This is what the dream means, your majesty. And what the Most High has declared will happen to my Lord the King. Now, before uh, Daniel got into this dream, 
He told uh, King Nebuchadnezzar that he wished the dream was really about Nebuchadnezzar's enemies and not about Nebuchadnezzar. Now, when someone tells you that they hope that your dream is about your enemies, you know it's not a dream, it's a nightmare, right? I mean, this is bad news. I wish this was happening to your enemies and not to you. Verse 25. You, Nebuchadnezzar, will be driven from human society. And you will live in the fields with the wild animals. You will eat grass like a cow. And you'll be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven periods of time will pass while you live this way. Until, here's the big deal. If I had a Bible, I'd underline it or highlight it in my iPad or whatever you use. Until you learn that the Most High rules over the kingdoms of the world and gives them to anyone he chooses. Now, the reason why you underline that is because that verse not only applies to Nebuchadnezzar, but applies to every leader who's ever lived, to every nation that's ever existed or ever will exist. What was true then is still true today. So you could put our country in there, any country in the world right now, and listen, until you learn, until that leader learns that the Most High rules over all the kingdoms of the world and gives them to anyone he chooses, until you learn that, God is going to bring judgment and discipline. Verse 26. But the stump and the roots of the tree were left in the ground. This means that you will receive your kingdom back when you have learned that heaven rules. Oh, boy, if you want to know how to pray for our president and whoever is going to be elected next, you ought to pray for them. If you want to pray for our, our, our government, our national, state, local leaders, you ought to pray. We ought to pray, God, please help them to understand heaven rules. And when we say heaven rules, who are we talking about? God, Please help them understand, God, help them to look up in the sky and realize you rule. And even though we're about to elect the the president of the most powerful nation in the world, and though we may be proud Americans, the reality is God rules. God rules. King Nebuchadnezzar, verse 27 This must have been hard to say, knowing who Nebuchadnezzar was. But you get a feeling that Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar had a pretty special relationship. King Nebuchadnezzar, please accept my advice. Stop sinning and do what is right. That's what we talked about last weekend, remember? Do what is right. Govern righteously. Break from your wicked past. So this dude's a wicked guy, all right? And be merciful to the poor, which tells you that there is a lack of justice and mercy. Perhaps then you will continue to prosper. Now, what do you think Nebuchadnezzar did? I mean, here's the guy that, you know, when Daniel interpreted the first dream, basically said, you're God, man. Wow, he produces. He's, he's the God of all gods. You would think the Nebuchadnezzar would go, Man, my pride's out of control. I forgot, Daniel, who your God is. Okay, I am going to repent. I am going to do exactly as you said. Pray for me that God will have mercy. What does Nebuchadnezzar do? Nothing. Nothing. And just to show you how gracious and how merciful God is, and I think it's because Daniel, I think Daniel really cared about Nebuchadnezzar. I think Daniel was like praying for Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, he gives him a whole year to repent and turn his ways around. Twelve months later, 
Nebuchadnezzar's head has gotten even bigger. They've had to get a bigger crown for him. All right? His pride has increased. And one day he walks out and he's kind of taking a look at Babylon, which was a magnificent city in its days. They say you could drive chariots four abreast around the wall. It's just huge, huge gardens, everything. Just a magnificent place. Nebuchadnezzar walks out, verse 29. Twelve months later, he was taking a walk on the flat roof of the royal palace in Babylon. As he looked out across the city, he said, Look at this great city of Babylon. Now, do you think his, uh, his wife was with him? Do you think some of his uh, uh, entourage was with him? Or was he just talking out loud to himself? Look at this great city of Babylon. In fact, while I was studying this, I was thinking about church, actually. And I thought, you know, this kind of applies to any leader in any position. And I thought, you know, it's, it's easy for even a pastor sometimes you know, especially of a, of a successful large church like the Compass Church, to sometimes drive by or walk out and say, Wow, look at this great church. Look what we've done. Look what I have done. Scary. Like, it's not my church. I get really upset when people say, you know, your church. And I'm like, no, please don't call it my church. There's a lot of reasons I don't want it to be called my church, okay? And one of the reasons why is I don't want to be to blame. All right? But the biggest reason why is I don't need, I just don't want the pride thing. I, this is Jesus' church, okay? I just happen to show up and be one of the servants like you. So this verse is really speaking to me. And I hope it's speaking to you this weekend here at 95th because everybody here has some form of leadership in your family, amongst your friends, at work. Some of you have businesses, some of you are employers, some of you are supervisors. You have authority over others. And sometimes it's tempting to think, look what I have done. Look what I have accomplished. Twelve months later, the king was taking a walk on the roof. And he says, as he looks across, says, look at this great city of Babylon. By my own mighty power, I have built this beautiful city as my royal residence to display my majestic splendor. My, my, my. Just like that, verse 31, while these words were still in his mouth, a voice called down from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, this message is for you. You are no longer ruler of this kingdom. You are no longer ruler of this kingdom. And Nebuchadnezzar opened his bottle of water and took a drink. Really? And you are no longer ruler of this kingdom. Now, please, look at the context of the verse. Don't you love scripture? Because earlier, earlier, what does what is he say? Until you learn there is only what? One ruler in heaven, right? Until you learn that heaven rules. And so that you'll learn that heaven rules, King Nebuchadnezzar, you are no longer the ruler of this kingdom. And I tell you what, you keep reading what happens, it's not pretty. Nebuchadnezzar basically becomes an animal. God doesn't take him down to his knees. God takes him down to all fours. He begins to eat the grass like a cow. Hair begins to grow out. Doesn't get the royal manicure. They turn into like claws. He's like this beast. And Daniel and the rest have to kind of run the kingdom for him. Because this happens for seven periods of time. Now, whether that's seven days, seven weeks, seven months, seven years, we don't know. 
But it's a long enough period of time when he's, you know, chewing the grass. And then all of a sudden it says that he looks up. And, and there, that's important. He looks up. See, he was looking down on his kingdom. Look what I've done. Now he's looking up and he recognizes that heaven rules. Verse 34. After this time had passed, I, Nebuchadnezzar. Now he's giving you his testimony, okay? So here's a, a, a foreign king, you know, not, not one of God's people. And I think we're going to see Neb in heaven, all right? That's my just personal opinion. Uh, I think it would be one of the surprises in heaven, actually. I think there would be a lot of surprises in heaven. Some people we don't expect to see and some people we thought would be there that aren't. I hope you are not going to be like one of those surprises. I hope you'll be there. I hope I'll be there, okay? And it says, after this time had passed, I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up to heaven. My sanity returned, and I praised and worshipped the Most High and honored the one who lives forever. Isn't that beautiful? Coming from the lips of Nebuchadnezzar. Man, it just shows you how powerful God is, doesn't it? Now, there have been other, other people like Pharaoh uh, who couldn't do that and wouldn't do that. You know, they just, they wouldn't break. They just, they just wouldn't break. But Nebuchadnezzar breaks. And I praise the worship most high and honor the one who lives forever. His rule is everlasting. This is like King Nebuchadnezzar's hymn. His rule is everlasting and his kingdom is eternal. All the people of the earth are nothing compared to him. Especially me. He does as he pleases Oh, man, he finally realizes God is sovereign. He does as he pleases among the angels of heaven. He's in control of all of heaven and among the people of the earth. No one can stop him or say to him, what do you mean by doing these things? Boy, our politicians need to read this, don't they? It's like they need to hear a peer. They need to hear one of the most powerful men in the world at, at one time in history. What he recognized, what he saw, so they don't repeat the same mistake. No one can stop him or say to him, what do you mean by doing these things? When my sanity returned to me, so did my honor and glory and kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out, and I was restored as head of my kingdom with even greater honor than before. Now, why does he get even greater honor than before? Because he's figured out who the real ruler of heaven is, right? And God wants to bless him. Now, I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and glorify and honor the king of heaven. All his acts are just and true. And he is able to humble the proud. Isn't that beautiful? You just want to, you know, part of me just wants to end there and say, that's it. That is it. It's just wonderful to see somebody like Nebuchadnezzar, you know, a pagan, a a, a brutal, evil, godless man. Just his life changed, transformed, and honoring God. And you hope and think that maybe those after him learn the lesson. But in chapter 5, we are introduced to his grandson, Belshazzar. And you would think that Belshazzar would remember what happened to Grandpa and when he goes to rule would say, I am not going to... I'm not going to say, make the same mistakes Grandpa did. I'm going to do it right and continue the blessing. But Belshazzar does not honor Grandpa. And more importantly, he does not 
honor God. Belshazzar was a party king. He loved wine. He loved women and wickedness. And God raised up another power, the Medes and the Persians, King Cyrus, to come against Belshazzar. But Belshazzar, he didn't really care about Cyrus because he's in his kingdom of Babylon, surrounded and fortified by these walls. And it is estimated there was enough food and water because the river Euphrates went through the city of Babylon and back out again. There was enough food and water to last 20 years. That's a big kingdom. It's a big place. And so he's like, why do I have to worry about him? I want to have the party. I got Mick Jagger and the Stones here. We're, we're partying. Right? We're having a great time. Forget about all that. There are major babes in Babylon. By this time, by the way, Daniel's a very old man. And Belshazzar says, you know what? Hey, remember, uh, remember that God Yahweh we, we defeated, you know, Jerusalem, whatever? Go and bring out his stuff because we're going to use his silverware. We're going to have ourselves a little party. So they go and they bring out the golden goblets, the silver goblets from the treasury. And they bring them and they're being passed out and wine's being poured in them. And they're slopping it, you know, and drinking and getting drunk and having a great time, making fun of God. Belshazzar, named for the God, another God of the Babylonians, the God of Bel. And then all of a sudden, in the middle of the party, a hand appears and begins to write on the wall. Belshazzar stopped drinking, and I'm going to guess everybody else stopped drinking because I tell you right now, here at Hobson 95th, if a hand appeared suddenly on the wall, started writing, all of us would get very quiet, wouldn't we? Or you'd be thinking, how did they do that technically? <laughs> We'd all get very quiet. What is that all about? Many, many tekel parsing. What does that mean? Belshazzar's like, guys, tell me, what, what's that all about? I'll, I'll make you number two in the kingdom. You tell me what, what's going on over there. I mean, they sobered up very quickly. Nobody could explain it. And the queen mother comes out, who was probably the daughter of Nebuchadnezzar, and says, I remember this old guy named Daniel. You know, remember, Grandpa, uh, he used to interpret some of his dreams. Daniel's brought in. Daniel's an old man, and Daniel's not real happy about Belshazzar and some of the things that have been going on. And so Daniel says, I'll tell you what it means. You keep your gifts and your reward to yourself, but I'll tell you what's going on here. And in verse 20, he says, I want to tell you a little bit about your grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar. When his heart and mind were puffed up with arrogance, he was brought down from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven from human society. He was given the mind of a wild animal, and he lived among the wild donkeys. He ate grass like a cow, and he was drenched with the dew of heaven until he learned that the Most High God rules over the kings of the world and appoints anyone he desires to rule over them. Verse 23, But you, Belshazzar, have proudly defied the Lord of heaven and have had these cups from his temple brought before you. You and your nobles and your wives and concubines have been drinking wine from them while praising gods of silver, gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Gods that neither see nor hear nor know anything at all. But you've not honored the God who gives you the breath of life, controls your destiny. I'd underline that. God controls the destiny of every one of us. God controls the destiny of every president, prime minister, every mullah, every, you know, 
every person that calls himself a king or a prince or whatever, God controls their destiny. So God has sent his hand to write this message. Many means numbered. Your days are numbered. Tekel means weighed. You've been weighed in the balance and you're found not measuring up. Parson, your kingdom is about to be divided. Now Cyrus was outside. And God gave wisdom to Cyrus how to take Babylon. Cyrus sent some of his troops to the other end of the city where the river Euphrates flowed out. He left some of his troops at the point where the river flowed in. He took another contingency of his troops. And according to history, according to history, extra biblical history, he then channeled the Euphrates River into a dried up swamp and told his troops, when the water is about waist deep, go under the wall, go in and unlock the door and we'll be there. And that's exactly what they did. And that night, Babylon fell, Belshazzar was killed, and Persia took over. And you, you look at that story and you read those words and you say to yourself, what happened? Well, we know what happened. Pride got in the way, didn't it? Pride got in the way. Belshazzar did not learn from the history of his own grandfather that when you mess with God, you mock God, you defy God, God is going to show up and bring you down. And when he brings the leader down, he brings those who follow the leader down with him or with her. And history History is like a junkyard filled, filled with nations who God has brought down because of their arrogance. Think about it for a minute. Think about those nations. Egypt, Babylon, Assyria before Babylon, Greece, Rome. I mean, think about places today. How powerful Russia was at one time. England, Spain, Portugal, France. And it would be arrogant of us to think that we're God's chosen nation. Because I hate to tell you this, we are not God's chosen nation. He only has one chosen nation I'll talk about at the end of our series, and that's Israel. Now, he's certainly blessed this nation. We are far from the perfect nation. We've committed horrible atrocities. We've done things that are wrong and evil. Talked about that last weekend. We're doing some evil things right now, like abortion. I mean, there's a lot of things that are wrong with our nation, and part of that is because our leaders haven't let us out of it. They just let us further into the fog. So the question becomes, you know, what's the great lesson that our leaders need to learn, that we need to pray for them, that we need to learn? And it's really very, very simple, and it goes like this. Simply put, leadership is stewardship, and if you don't manage well the authority God gives you, he will eventually take it away. And that's what I think God wants Every leader in government to understand and what we have to understand too, I think is the way we have to pray for our leaders as well. Could you put it up again, please? Leadership is stewardship. And if you don't manage well the authority God gives you, God is going to take it away. 
And that not only affects the leader, but affects those who, who he or she leads over. And the sad truth is, we, we've had leaders over not just this administration, but many different administrations who have not led us to God, but have been leading us through policies and ideologies and philosophies away from God into the fog. In 1923, there was a naval exercise that was being held off the coast of California. The man in charge of that exercise was on the USS Delphi. It was Lieutenant Commander Donald Hunter. Donald Hunter was known to be a very bright navigator and a teacher at the Naval Academy. He had uh, six or seven ships following him on this exercise when suddenly they were engulfed by a thick blanket of fog, which Hunter said was like pea soup. But instead of stopping or slowing down, he kept moving ahead at 20 knots. And everybody followed him because he was known for being a brilliant navigator. And he seemed to possess this infallible sense of, of success and direction. Little did they know that they were heading toward Devil's Jaw, a section two miles off the California shoreline filled with rocks. And at 20 knots, the USS Delphi rammed into Allegro Point. And when the steel hull hit those rocks, it split that hull. And all the ships that were following ran into the same rocks. Twenty sailors died, and every one of those ships was wrecked. And to this day, it is the greatest peacetime naval disaster our nation has ever had. Because one man refused to slow down and wait out the fog, and get the right direction. Our country's in an economic, but more importantly, in a moral fog today. And what we want to do is pray for our leaders not to take us deeper into the fog because they think they have the answer, but to lead us out of the fog by following the compass of God's word. And God's truth. God, help us. Amen? Let's pray. Father, um, I just want to lift up our president and ask you, Father, to please help him and his cabinet understand that heaven rules. And I pray, oh God, that you would move him and them toward leading us in the right direction because we've been going in the wrong direction, God, for a long time. And God, in your sovereignty, because you control the destiny of the, of the kings, of the presidents, if you allow for another leader to come into place, I, I pray for Governor Romney that he will not lead us deeper into the fog. I pray that he'll lead us out. 
And God, I pray for wisdom for all of us as we are part of that decision. To, Father, be like Daniel and pray for our leaders and be submissive in the right way to our leaders, whether we like them or not, whether they are part of our party or not, oh God. God, men don't have the answer. You do. And we just want to follow you. We love you tonight, God. We thank you that we're not in a fog because we've been saved by Jesus. And we have the compass, not the church, but the word upon which this church is built on. Christ and his word. Lead us and guide us in these days, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.